You are listening to the Doc Doc Goose podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Doc Doc Goose podcast, the podcast that is never politically correct and always HIPAA compliant. My name is Sean Palmer. I'm one of your docs. This is Ben Imes. He is the other doc. That's me, still a doctor. And not a provider. And our <laughs> goose, not a Matt Imes. And not a doctor, not a provider, not a doc. Yes. You know, Sean, this has nothing to do with our topic today, but... Uh, <laughs> Sean has nothing to do with our topic? That's no, 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 this next part. Uh, so uh, oh. recently, Sean sent me an article that I had seen already on Facebook, or something similar to the one I'd seen on Facebook, and it basically talked about uh, uh, the origins of the term provider uh, in healthcare, and uh, it stems apparently from Nazi Germany. So I was gonna guess Egypt. Ah, close. Nazi Germany. Uh, back when the Nazis tried to take away the Jews' medical licenses, uh, they relegated them to not being allowed to call themselves doctors, and they had to instead be called providers. So, uh, if you want to call me a provider, you are apparently a Nazi sympathizer. So. Um, <laughs> that's a long stretch right there and here's the deal that's the least inflammatory thing I'm going to say today <laughs> so oh, so gosh. I got I said that to Beggs I got on Twitter this morning and there was an epic rant on Twitter that, that a, another physician had put on there and she you know, just like the title of that article she went straight for it and just said if you're going to call me a provider you might as well call me a Nazi everyone's like whoa that escalated quick what's happened here and so there's a huge argument about that. Um, so I thought that was fun since we had recently talked about that on the podcast. Uh, apparently Ben enjoyed that article as well. <clears throat> yes. Oh, good times. Because I've been wanting to really circle back around to that whole thing. Um, and not to get fully into it. I think it is fair. And what I put on this person's you know, Twitter feed is I in no way think that Ben should introduce himself as a provider. I don't think anyone should ever introduce himself, walk in a room and say, hi, I'm your provider today, no matter who you are. He's a physician. He earned his right as a physician to say, I'm your physician, Dr. Imes. I'm a physical therapist. I will walk into a room and say, I'm your physical therapist, Sean Palmer. However, we have this umbrella that we all fit into of being healthcare providers. And that is how provider is used. Not saying that you are a provider, but in the grand scheme of things, you've you actually fallen into this in some of our of our episodes of having to say provider because you don't know what else to say. I know. If, it, if we're talking about everybody, what do we call us? It disgusts me. I mean, instead of provider, we could maybe say all the, all you morons with more uh, medical debt than you could possibly pay off in your life. I don't know. But I, for now, we're just going to say providers. Oh, I prefer the first one. Um, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, so for today, we are talking about vaccines. Um, I do want to make sure that everybody knows that this is a 
educational podcast. We are not establishing a physician-patient relationship with you. We're not establishing a physical therapist-patient relationship with you. And most definitely, we are not establishing an architect-client relationship with you. Uh, so if you feel like we are giving you medical advice, you're wrong. Uh, that's or really building advice. Or building advice, you're wrong. Uh, oh, we're, also... We really just want to educate you. And uh, we know today's going to be a hot topic issue. Um, we want to help stimulate some conversation, help provide some answers. Uh, we know this is not the end of the discussion today. And let's be honest, uh, his use of the term educational podcast is used very liberally. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe a little more on the, the uh, not so educational side, but entertaining side of things. Mm. Once in a while we do venture toward educational, but it's rare. So don't worry. We, we try not to steer too close to that side of things. You're right. No, it's like the sun. You stay away from it. Mm. You can look at it through like special reflective glasses. So that's what you should do with us. Um, ben, what are we talking even about? Though, even though we're, we're an audio podcast. <laughs> yeah, don't look at us too closely. <laughs> you should probably sure. wear, wear earplugs when you're listening to us. You're doing it wrong. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about vaccines. Uh, we do not have time, and nor do you, to unplug, unplug, unravel the complex issue that vaccines are. Please don't uh, I'm unplug us. That's rude. <laughs> you probably should unplug us. Uh, we're we're going to talk a little bit about the, the debate about vaccines, the benefit of vaccines, possible harm of vaccines, and because we are... Uh, really, really smart. We're going to get somebody who's actually smart on the show to talk about vaccines. We're going to try and get a pediatrician on here who uh, will be fantastic. Um, so that'll be a little bit later in the podcast after we've kind of done some of our intro. His name is Dr. Brian Liddell. He's part of the doctor and dietitian uh, blog, and he is pretty fantastic. So we'll get him in here a little bit later. But what do you think about this topic, Ben? So this is this is a, a very controversial topic, even though it shouldn't be. But it is a controversial topic. People have very, very strong feelings about uh, whether you should or should not vaccinate your children. What we um, want to preface with, Ben, I'm going to throw this out there. I'm pretty sure you believe with me, uh, is that if... if, um, if those in the medical field, did you like how I got away from providers? Well done. <clears throat> if those in the medical field practice evidence-based medicine, that means that you have to look at the research, see what it says, determine if it's right, look at who's behind these studies. Are they funding what they want to prove or are they objective researchers just seeing what's out there? And then you take that information and you put it into your practice. Um, and we're going to try to go very objective into here's what the studies are. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what we know happens. If you don't do this, here's what could happen. If you do do this, that makes sense. Yes. And I appreciate your use of the word do do. You're welcome. Um, yes, exactly. We're going to try and be objective. It's very hard because this is such an, an issue that uh, I'm very passionate about. So let's, let's start off with with some definitions. So uh, let's start with our goose. Uh, tell me, what is your understanding of what is a vaccine? Um, my definition of a vaccine would be 
something that's administered to you to help your health. Dude, I, I think that's a very, very good understanding. Um, Call me Mr. Dictionary. Mr. Dictionary. Yeah, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. So, you know, and I think that's really close. So vaccines, they, they are administered to us to help our health, but really by stimulating the immune system so that we can fight off things before they become a problem. Mm. Uh, that's the whole goal behind them is to prepare before bad things happen. So when you when you talk about vaccines, you're not talking just about vaccines administered to children, but you're also talking about to adults, such as if you're traveling or if um, maybe the elderly, would that be correct in saying vaccines as a whole? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So vaccines as a whole are not limited to kids and... We give them to adults, like you said, in travel situations where you're going to a region where some sort of illness is uh, endemic and there's lots of it there and people get sick uh, when they're exposed to it and can die from it. Then we want to try and prevent them from having that. Um, and so and other things, as we get older, as we age, our immune system doesn't work as well. And so we want to help prevent some of the bad things from happening to us as we get older. So there are uh, vaccines that we give to um, older adults as well. So, um, so yeah, we're not just limiting it to kids. Now, usually it's kids getting vaccines where the, the controversy ar arises. I any of you have friends? Either of you have friends? <laughs> Let's just start with that. Uh, <laughs> I'm out of this. <laughs> So, right. Sean, this, this question's directed at you. <laughs> there are two people who agree to do a podcast with me that I assume are my friends, so I have two. Oh, um, wait, I'm back in. I probably have two friends. <laughs> I want you both to know you are down by one. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. But uh, I have one friend. <laughs> uh, so do either of you have friends who choose not to vaccinate or who might be anti-vaxxers or vax skeptics i don't know do you sean my friend <laughs> <laughs> well you in your case it would be no because we we do vaccinate i i we do have uh, acquaintances yes that that um and actually family as well uh who choose to not vaccinate and are uh quite outspoken in that endeavor as the people who do not vaccinate often are outspoken in that endeavor. Yeah, it's really sad. There's a lot of, I think, hostility on both sides because both sides are very passionate. And I think both of them are passionate because of their fears. So without being able to speak for all sides, my understanding is that the people who don't vaccinate are passionate because they're scared of the vaccines. They are afraid of what those are going to do to their children. And when we see that our children are threatened, we become, as parents, we become very, very passionate about protecting our kids. It's a uh, good reaction. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. Uh, on the other side, those of us who are uh, pro-vaccine would say, hey, we've seen the consequences or we understand what the consequences of not vaccinating are. And that scares the dickens out of us also. And I see the consequences of not vaccinating kids and 
it's terrifying to me that my kids could be harmed by that. So uh, both sides tend to come together uh, out of fear and neither one really tends to appreciate the other's viewpoint very well. Uh, so currently kids are given over 72 vaccines over the course of their childhood, which wow. both sides point to as a major talking point for themselves. So the pro-vaxxers are like, wow, we've got 72 vaccines. Look at all the things that we are preventing. The anti-vaxxers are saying, wow, 72 vaccines. Look at all the chemicals and poisons we're putting into our children. And, uh, uh, you know, I think both sides have, have some merits. So you may have to edit this out because I don't have any basis outside of just hearing about this this week. But they were talking about this this food or something that was, it, it's similar to vitamin water, where is getting a, getting bad exposure for some, some of the ingredients within it saying, oh, it does this or it does that. So there's a similar thing about a product that I heard about this week that had something that people were saying causes cancer or is being known to cause cancer. But the, the person defending it was saying, hey, it's based on how the compounds are actually put together, not just the specific um, uh, ingredient, I guess. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, so what I guess my, my point is, is that similar to what the um, anti-vaccination people would say that, uh, that these vaccines are doing, that they're worried about all these chemicals coming in because in different instances, they can be bad for you, but not necessarily as a vaccine. I think uh, it's that question. Don't you have to, to really have a full list of all the stuff that's that's in the vaccine, which, you know, the, the, the form of the virus is really what what is should be going in. That's the main the main ingredient. Um, a lot of the anti-vaccine crowd usually cite cite articles that say that you know they're dumping just random chemicals you know used to mix these things together and that that's really the the big issue am i correct in that ben what you've heard as well yeah uh, sometimes it's a it's a mix it's a it's really a mixture of both of kind of what you guys are saying so some people are saying look some of these exact chemicals are causing issues and some of them are saying look it's just really the the amount of them and the way that they're being combined together yeah so the trouble is, you know, we're working on better and better ways of giving the vaccines. Um, a lot of them now are combined into a single shot. Um, so you don't have to give as many of them uh, many different shots because you've got multiples that are combined together, uh, which is very helpful. Um, but still, people then freak out because they're saying, well, now they're all combined together. Is this going to be bad? Uh, I don't even know where to start with this because... There's so many different ways we could go. Really, I think the big thing is, is our vaccines safe? And, um, and what, are, what are they really providing for us? Um, one of the things, you know, when you say, are vaccines safe? That, that's a tough question because anytime you break the skin barrier, which most of these vaccines do, you introduce a risk of infection. 
you introduce a risk of bleeding. And so, so they're, they're not 100% safe just by the very nature of giving them with an injection. Uh, then can you have a reaction to the compounds in them? Uh, there's lots of other things that can go wrong. So any vaccine, not 100% safe. I think we can all agree on that. Anybody want to disagree on that? I, I know no difference. I concur. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, jumping from there, then we have to say, okay, so what are what are the, the end risks or what are other risks that are involved with these? Um, I have a couple of patients who have gotten a condition called Guillain-Barre from this, and this is one that a lot of people will point to. This is one where you end up getting paralyzed. Uh, it starts kind of from the feet and it works its way up. And it's a paralysis that eventually, if not stopped, uh, will kill you. Um, because as it gets to the respiratory muscles, then you stop breathing and that's bad for life. How, how do you get this? Allegedly. Uh, that's allegedly bad for life. So there's a reaction between that and we'll see it. Um, it's most commonly associated with the flu shot, but there are other vaccines that it can be associated with. And it's just an over uh, reaction of your immune system. And it's a terrible thing. Um, I have, I have two patients who have had Guillain-Barre in the past, um, neither while they were under my care, but kind of came in with that history. Uh, both of them ended up in the ICU for a long time and both of them ended up surviving, but, uh, they are pretty scared about any future vaccines, which I would imagine. So now can I ask a question here? Yes. Um, since I've already interrupted him as well, um, is it, is it for sure the vaccine caused that? Because Guillain-Barre can be caused just by, you know, having a cold or the flu, and it's your immune system having this this response that goes after that gets lost in not only killing the virus itself, but then going attacking the body is what Guillain-Barre is. Right, and I think that's a fantastic question, and I think you bring up a good point. Yeah, you can get Guillain-Barre with just a normal virus. So. Um, but yes, it's been at least associated with the flu shot and some of these other vaccines as well. So um, it, we can pretty much say that it's a known but very rare risk, um, but it, it's it's definitely associated with it. But you're right. It can be associated with just having a normal virus um, or even some of these other terrible viruses. So uh, it, it, here's, here's what a lot of this comes down to is uh, I heard a good... Um, What's the right word? I heard a good uh, analogy for this, and that was, uh, let's say you had a child who you buckled into a car, uh, into their, you know, their seatbelt, and then, you know, for whatever reason, you got in an accident, and it was actually, it ended up being the seatbelt that killed the child. It would be a terrible thing, first of all, um, but then no right-minded person would go about on a crusade saying nobody should ever be seatbelted. Right. We, we see that not being seatbelted has much worse effects than actually being seatbelted. Um, and so, you know, is it is it reasonable to go out and try and make better seatbelts, safer seatbelts? Yes. But to say everybody should not be seatbelted, um, maybe that's not such a good idea. And so, uh, you know, that's that's a lot of how I look at this is we know the consequences of these diseases that vaccines protect against. And they are terrible, terrible, terrible. And. Um, and even though there's a risk with them, uh, it's very low and we would prefer to not have these diseases that they help prevent. So and I think you kind of already said it, but, but, um, you know, going back to the, to the car accident thing, 
we know if you don't put the kid in the car seat and you get in a bad accident, what's going to happen? Right. You, if the, if you put the kid in the car and that's catastrophic, if you put the kid in the car seat and something goes wrong, just some strange circumstance where the child then gets harmed as a result of it, no one really saw that, that one coming so much. Um, are the risks there? Yes, they're inherently there. However, you did what you could to protect from the, from what you knew was going to happen without that restraint. And so that's kind of the same way that we're looking at that, at the vaccinations is that we know, and we're starting to see in areas of Washington and Oregon and California, when you have areas that, that to a large degree are not vaccinating their children, you know, what's going to happen. And that's when these measles outbreaks are coming in to, to play. Um, you know, people are starting to die from things that we have not seen in a long time and should not be seen. So we know what's going to happen if, if we do not, you know, vaccinate, but if we do vaccinate, okay, there, there are other risks of other things coming in and we have to be real with that and be watching for those and figure out how to mitigate those. But at least you have the chance of not, or not just chance, you won't get the things that we know are coming in that car accident. Right. That makes sense. Right. And, and then, you know, the opposite side of that, Sean, people will say, well, we we give these vaccines against things like measles, which for most people, it doesn't cause much of a big deal. It'll give them a rash. They'll feel kind of crummy for, you know, a week or so and uh, maybe two weeks and then, then they're, they're better. And, and that's true. That's, that's, you know, that's very true. But the complications from measles uh, can be very terrible and can be deadly. And that's, and that's kind of what we kind of run into is we're saying, hey, we can prevent this virus that can kill some kids uh, and we maybe run the risk of giving some kids um, uh, some pain with an injection. We might give them a rash, a localized rash that's not going to hurt them. Um, you know, we, there might be a little bit of bleeding, but, uh, you know, we, we'd rather that than have somebody get a brain infection and then die. That'd be kind of a terrible thing. And and with measles, it's so easy to spread. It's so contagious that uh, it can just move through communities very, very quickly. And it can be very deadly at that point. So, And that's what we're starting to see in the news. It is. You know, in some of these communities that, that to a large degree are not vaccinating their, their children don't have that what's called herd immunity you know, as well as that, that these things are spreading quickly, <clears throat> unfortunately. Now... Now, wasn't um, wasn't part of what spurred this anti-vaccine idea to um, really kind of uh, some of the celebrities, especially like Jenny McCarthy was the one I can think of the most that wrote a book saying saying that her son has autism and it was caused by vaccines. And that kind of spread like brush fire um, and really fueled a lot of this uh, anti-vaccine movement. It, yeah, you know, we can we see it, that a lot of times um, celebrities can use their fame for uh, good, and sometimes they can use it for bad. And Jenny McCarthy is one of those ones who's used it for for bad. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because just recently on Twitter, her uh, physician, who's kind of helped helped her with not vaccinating her her son and her children, actually recently came out and said. Hey, due to the recent outbreak of measles, get the MMR vaccine as fast as possible. And so I think that's kind of an interesting change of pace where he's starting to see, oh, shoot, um, people are, are having bad things. Now, 
Um, I do want to point out somebody who's done a good job because if somebody's doing a good job, kind of call them out, right? So uh, you guys know who Anna Kendrick is? Yep. Uh, from Pitch Perfect? Yep. Yeah. Matt, maybe yes. he knows. Yes. Yeah, yes. cool. So she actually was on, uh, she was on somebody's talk show the other day and she uh, had everybody do this, this awesome experiment where she said, okay, um, so I've done, I've started doing this new thing uh, and so I want you all to do it with me. And so under everybody's seat in the audience, there was an orange and she's like, okay, go ahead and take the orange and you're going to put it up to your nose. And this way, this is a new thing. It's called like uh, orange immersion therapy. I, I don't remember all the details, but where you like inhale the, the scent of the orange and you got to scratch it a little bit to get all the, the oils to come out. And this will help your immune system. It'll help you feel better, help you concentrate better. And, and she's like, okay, do you guys start feeling it? You feeling it? And, and then she's like, I just made it all up, right? Don't do things just because a celebrity tells you to do things. Like that's stupid. And uh, I was like, oh, that's fantastic. That's good because uh, celebrities um, make mistakes just as much as the rest of us. And a lot of them don't have as much education. So I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble for that comment. Uh, well, I'm sure there are lots of celebrities out there with education. You guys are very smart. Congratulations. And I think it's also important to note that people want to find, they want to point blame on something or someone else for something. They want a reason for why something happened. And so, so they'll come up the reason whether or not there's data or evidence that that's the case. And so... Exactly. I think that's a great point. And again, I think it comes back to causation versus correlation. You'll see, wow, this happened at the same time as this. They have to be related. And um, if you look a little bit deeper, maybe that's not true. So yeah, people would rather blame uh, something than have an unknown answer. Uh, so next, we're going to have uh, Brian Liddell answer some questions that we've had from uh, both our Facebook and Instagram uh, people have submitted as well as some that we have submitted to him uh, here and uh, again he is part of the doctor and the dietitian blog and we're excited to have him here Uh, let's start off with an easy question for you today, Brian. Uh, we, we're really glad to have you here. Uh, Brian, are your kids vaccinated? Yeah, all of them are. Well, some of them are a little too young to be completed, but yes, we're working on it. They're, they're, they're all on top of it. How, how many kids mm -hmm. do you have? We have three kids. Three kids. Okay. And did you decide to do a delayed vaccine schedule at all? We did not. And uh, I'm sure you as a pediatrician have probably heard that question before. What are your thoughts on delayed vaccine schedules? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think we hear it all the time, right? In clinic, um, you probably get it too, Ben. Um, yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot more that goes into that question than maybe people think about. Um, you know, not every vaccine preventable illness is the same, right? So every single type of illness has a different severity and um, possibility of complications. And so when parents are deciding maybe how they're going to go about doing their vaccine schedule, oftentimes they think that they're kind of ranking them from 
maybe most severe to least severe or most likely to have side effects to least likely to have side effects. And they're trying to like make this little schedule on their own. Right. I think it's important to just remember that the CDC has the schedule the way they do for a reason. Um, one, it's supposed to follow along when the child is most likely to have problems from that illness. So it's age appropriate. And then two, the severity of the illness based on their age. Um, and then I guess last would be just the frequency of which you need to get boosters for it. So there's a lot that goes into that question. So yeah, alternative schedules are out there and some people say they're better or worse. Um, but I, th I think there's a lot more than just a yes or no answer to that. Right. And I, I mean, and I think that's a really good answer, Brian. Um, it, you know, if you just type in delayed vaccine schedule or alternative vaccine schedule into Google, you're going to get a whole bunch of hits and everybody's got their own theory on how to do that better. Um, but I, like you said, the CDC uh, has put a lot of research and study into this and they've got it down to a science for lack of a better term, right? Like, Right, right. Like, yeah, it's weird how it's science and data-driven, right? Right, right, exactly. Um, I think one of the things, as we talk about the CDC, is uh, a lot of people will say, well, the CDC is big government and they're bought off by big pharma. And, uh, and then they also go along with, you know, doctors get a ton of money and kickback from these vaccines. Um, ha have you been getting any kickbacks for the vaccines? No, I haven't. Yeah, no, I haven't. I wish I was. Right. Um, I, I, I'm still frustrated. About I this. mean, I know. I don't, I don't know. We work for different types of employers, I think, Ben. But um, yeah, I haven't seen the money. I don't know where it is. Right. Um, you know, I've, so I have heard stories of um, certain insurance companies in certain regions of the country offering incentives as part of um, kind of the insurance program to the provider. For example, I've heard that for every patient at two years old who you can have completely 100% vaccinated, the insurance company will write you a check for, say, $400. And the reason the insurance company is doing that is because they're prepping for their future, right? So the more of their patients they can get fully vaccinated, the less likely they are to have their patients develop illnesses and complications as they're older. So they're willing to pay the money up front. Um, but that's coming from an insurance company, not from big pharma, as you say. Yeah, those those manufacturers of those vaccines, those evil yeah, people. Yeah, so those are really the only things where I've actually heard personal stories of physicians actually receiving income from getting people vaccinated. Uh, yeah, I, I honestly, I feel like I know a fair number of physicians, and I've been asking them. Nobody, nobody's getting any of these kickbacks. So right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's conspiracy theories for a reason, but, uh, none of the people I know have been getting the money. So, uh, Sean, I feel like you have something to say. I'm just shocked. I just heard an insurance company rewards you for doing your job. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, like, right? You get penalized for everything else you try to do. Well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't understand. I don't know how many of these insurance companies are doing stuff like that. I know the ones I work with are not, but, um, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Do you think that do you think it's happening more in the states that are having issues like Washington, Oregon, even California, where you have larger groups, let's say that aren't that aren't vaccinating their children that they're trying to get you know back on? Yeah, track? I don't know. I'm not exactly sure which regions are and which companies are doing it. I've just heard stories of it, so sure. yeah, I'm not sure. Sean, are your kids are your kids vaccinated, Sean? 
Uh, we can't vaccinate the one in the womb yet. The, they just don't do that at this point. But um, the one that is... Uh, I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> running around, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes my son's fully Fantastic. vaccinated. Fantastic. We are both firm believers in science and firm evidence-based yes. practice. Um, it, you know, we've got uh, a lot of controversy right now about measles, Dr. Liddell. Um there's a lot of arguments that I've been reading where measles don't really kill people very often. They don't really die from measles. It's really just a rash. Do I really need to get the MMR? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's just, I think, some misunderstanding maybe of how bad measles can be. I don't know, Ben, you probably know from training, but measles can be really severe. I think, I think the data I've seen on it so in high-risk patients, so for me as a pediatrician, patients less than five years old are considered high-risk for measles complications. Um, and the data I've seen is about one in four to one in five of every patient who contracts measles under the age of five ends up in the hospital. Um, about one in a thousand ends up with encephalitis, which is an infection of the brain. Um, and then there's, you know, been reports of one to two per thousand who end up dying of measles when they're under the age of five. And that's U.S. data from recently. So to me, that's bad. Those are bad numbers. Um, yeah. So, yeah. No. Uh, anytime children are dying or ending up in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know where people are getting the idea that measles is not a big deal. And yeah, I mean, it does give you a rash and some kids do fine with it, but I know when I think about it as a parent, I'm not taking that chance. One in a thousand, that's, I don't know. No, thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, super high chance. And then, I mean, I didn't even know one in five are going to need to be at least hospitalized, it sounds like. I mean, that's that's not a good place for kids. Like, Yeah. That's, that's where a lot of other diseases are, and taking them to the hospital really is not a good thing. Yeah, agreed. Uh, um. What's what's kind of been your experience as to why people typically don't want to vaccinate kids their or their children? I don't know. I guess um, so common things people say, like vaccine additives or um, components in the vaccine separate from the actual um, thing you're vaccinating against is one. Um, maybe the... Uh, the thought that the natural infection is healthier and better than the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe they just don't think the illnesses are around anymore. So the risk is just not high enough. I think those are probably the big ones. Um, has there ever been anybody where they said, absolutely not, I'm not getting my child vaccinated and you were able to kind of provide them with a little bit of education and they come around or are people typically one side or the other? I think people kind of have their decision made up before they even come into the doctor. Yeah. I think, I don't know that maybe that's a generational thing that's changed in just medicine in general. But, um, I think a lot of patients think they know what they need before they come in. Yes. There's, there's a lot of that. Uh, you know, I'm coming to McDonald's. Let me, let me get my order of what right. I want when I get to the doctor's office. Yeah, exactly. What percentage of patients do you have that um, are pro versus anti-vaccine? 
so the population I work with is probably a higher vaccinated rate than kind of national averages. So somewhere around 5% are unvaccinated. And then maybe another 5% are just kind of behind schedule, but want to catch up. Oh, really? They actually yeah. are looking to catch up now. Yeah. Like it's on the a ones, delayed, you know, on they're either schedule. on a delayed schedule or life was just too busy that they kind of forgot to come in for checkups and they have plans on getting it done. How, how do you handle the conversations with that 5% that, that, um, are anti-vaccine? I usually just try and open it up with something simple like, Hey, I noticed your kid hasn't had any vaccines yet. What's your game plan? And just kind of see where they lead the conversation. I don't, I haven't found people to be very responsive to like scare tactics or pressure tactics or something. So it's more just, Hey, is there a specific question or concern you had that I could answer or give you education about? Otherwise they kind of have their decision made up. Yeah. I think I've found that too a lot, Brian, that when the parents come in, they've, they've already got their decision made for the most part, unfortunately. Um, And, and they know what they want and, and sometimes there's legitimate specific fears that they're saying, Hey, here's what I, I, I just, if you can just tell me the answer to this, then I'll do the vaccine. Um, but that, I think that's few and far between. Most people are not coming in with an open mind. Yeah. Agreed. Um, one of the ones that I've been getting a lot of kickback against lately is the Gardasil vaccine mm-hmm. or that vaccine yeah. against the HPV virus. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I am a huge fan of HPV vaccine. Um, Straight up HPV. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, so Gardasil is a great vaccine, right? It's like the only vaccine that's out on the market that I'm aware of that prevents against cancer. So that's cool. Um, Right, that's actually really cool, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, super cool. And I think (laughs) preteens and teenagers are like, you tell them that and they can actually relate to that and process that. And they're powerful patients. Um, you just got to get it past their parents sometimes, but yeah, I mean, super cool that there's a prevention for a very common cause of cancer. I think it's awesome. Um, it, we've got good data on it. There's been over a hundred million patients who have been vaccinated with HPV vaccine now. Um, so we have tons of safety data over what has it been 10 to 15 years now? Um, Mm -hmm. And so super safe vaccine, super effective vaccine. Yeah. And I highly promote it in my patients. Do you? Yeah. Um, as I'm kind of, as I was kind of doing research for the blog, uh, and the podcast, there's lots of forums out there talking about how dangerous Gardasil is. What, how do you respond to, to that? Yeah. The CDC data has shown that there's a slightly higher risk in having a syncopal episode after getting the HPV vaccines. That means passing out. And so, um, our clinic, and I think most clinics will just keep patients, um, seated in the vaccine room for about 15 minutes after they administer the shot. And that seems to be kind of deal with the, that issue. Um, otherwise the side effect profile is pretty much the same as most of the other common vaccines low-grade fevers, injection site pain and rashes, those kind of things. So there's not great data showing that there's any more significant risk than any of the other vaccines. I love that answer. I think that's, that's good. It's, it's one that I, I mean, that's a question I hear all the time. Uh, no, I probably don't want to do a Gardasil for my son or daughter. What are your thoughts on vaccinating, uh, males with the Gardasil? 
Yeah, I again, I strongly promote it even in the boys. Um, so we know that HPV um, has higher rates of complications in females, obviously. But the problem is that HPV is sexually transmitted. And so oftentimes males are asymptomatic carriers of HPV and they don't even know it. They, they pass it along to their partner and then they're the ones who end up with complications. So yeah, trying to prevent it in the boys can be really important. What's the optimal age that that's recommended? Yeah, so you're eligible to start the series at nine years old. Um, and so I start talking about it at that point. A lot of parents do it when they're doing their kind of 11 and 12 year old boosters. The goal is to be done with the series before you're sexually active. So, you know, that's different for every family and every kid. Um, and then I think they've extended the upper age limit of it, Ben, you might know more than me, but I think you can get it later into adulthood now. Yeah. I don't remember what it is, but I think it's like 26 or 21 or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, it's yeah somewhere in the 20s, and I, I think they might have even extended it into the 30s now or something. So, uh, FDA expands use of an HPV vaccine up to age 45. There it is. Oh, Bam. I can still get so it. So Gar yes. Gardasil was approved for ages 9 to 26, um, but there's an HPV vaccine uh, recently approved in October of 2018, all the way up to 45. So that's kind of there exciting. it is. Yeah. Uh, and I think what's really cool about this one is Australia right now is kind of pioneering the way with this. And I don't know if you've kind of followed up with this at all, Brian. Um, but they're hoping to have uh, eliminated cervical cancer, or at least have it down to uh, very, very, very tiny amounts. But I think 2025, just because they're having everybody high rates of HPV vaccines. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. And you know, here we are, we're still dealing with measles. So. Right. Oh, frustrating. Um, mm -hmm. We have an aunt that's well, an aunt and cousins that are, that are very anti-vaccine and they're always spouting the studies of, you know, we, you never know what's in the, the vaccines and, you know, X, plant was tainted with you know god knows what <laughs> in their vaccines you know um who even knows where these stories come right. from um what what are the, the the most common stories that you hear like that that people are, are, are going to be combative about i think when you're talking about um vaccine ingredients and additives you know, there's a couple common ones that come up. Um, a big one is mercury, right? So everybody is fearful of mercury poisoning. Um, and, you know, I guess rightfully so. Um, so the issue with, in regards to vaccines is um, there's a preservative called thimerosal that um, can break down into a type of mercury called ethylmercury. Um, and the human body clears ethylmercury very easily and it doesn't cause any problems. So there's really not a concern. And thimerosal is only, at least to my understanding, is only in multi-dose vials of vaccinations now, which is like none of the childhood vaccines. They're all single use now. Um, so it's not commonly used and it's not the same type of mercury that everybody hears about as being poisonous that, you know, you find in your foods and soil and that kind of stuff. Right. Right. I think, I think that's a really good distinction, Brian, that we're phasing it out just in case there is any right. side effects from it. But 
from what we can see, there's really no no safety issue. Yeah. Is there any known um, reaction to like a gene expression that would that would inhibit some people from being able to clear like you know, even this type of metal? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, that, okay. I don't know. That's a good question for a geneticist. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like we, a true pediatrician. We, we had. <laughs> I'm not that smart, man. Come on. We no, man. Family medicine. We don't ever use geneticists because by this point, like. Uh, for the most part, like everything's already been diagnosed by the pediatricians <laughs> and you, you guys are like, oh yeah, send them off to geneticists. Like, those yeah, guys. they're probably dead by the time they get to you. Huh? Yeah, exactly. If it's really that big of a problem. Yeah. So, so, so we had that question come from, from someone on our Facebook page and I'm going to spell this out for what they put as the gene. I'm not sure if they just are trying to get me to say something dirty or not. <laughs> yeah. But there's oh, what they yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is a really interesting topic. Um, uh, MTHFR, I forget what it stands for. It, <laughs> so it's an enzyme that's in the folate pathway. So Ben, you, you probably remember folate's involved in um, some blood cell pathways, right? And so there's a form of folate deficiency um, that can cause anemia. There's something called homocystinuria that's on that pathway. Anyway, this MTHFR gene is like the super trendy thing to get tested for now. Um, but I think that the numbers I've seen is about like 30% of the population has some carrier status of an MTHFR gene mutation of some sort. And it often has no relevance to any of their medical care. And so it's sometimes just putting a label to something that gives somebody false answers, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, and I guess the, the thing you hear about in regards to immunizations is one of those gene mutations um, supposedly affects the way that your body responds to certain immune stresses of which immunizations are. Um, but it's extremely rare and we don't routinely test for that. So it's definitely a geneticist level question. I, yeah. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm really impressed by how much Brian knows. He like just off the cuff, <laughs> we didn't actually prep him for that question. And he's like, bam, 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 bam. I, I know <laughs> yeah, all these things. It, I'm... So these are all the crazy things that people come in and ask the pediatrician about. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So you really have to stay up on top of these things. That's good. Yeah. It's weird. You can stay on top of all the weird stuff. <laughs> I don't know how to treat bronchitis, but I remember the MTHFR. <laughs> and your patients appreciate that. Here, here's one that uh, uh, I get asked a lot. Also, how many how many vaccines are safe to get at one time? Do you ever get asked that question? Yeah, yeah. I think that question comes up sometimes in the alternative schedule or delayed schedule. Um, families, uh, people are a little nervous about injecting their kid with a lot of things. I. I try and explain it that, you know, infants and toddlers, they're exposed to all kinds of antigens every single day. They're touching everything and putting it in their mouth and they're all over the place. So the data I've seen is, you know, the common baby who moves gets 30 to 50 antigen exposures a day every single day. And some of those are probably actually pathogens. Ooh. So if you're going to inject them with a few more every couple months, I'd don't see how that's relevant. Um, but 
I don't know. Some people want to spread them out. I, I think that's a really good point, Brian. I, I, yeah. I think I'm going to start using that a little bit more. Um, yeah, I've never heard it explained that way. It's really, good. Really, really wise. I get this question a lot uh, from adults and from adults with children about their children. Uh, the kids never ask the question. Uh, if if the child is sick, so you've got a four-year-old who's sick, he's got a little upper respiratory infection, um, she's got like a, a mild bronchitis, is that going to stop the child from getting a vaccine? Is that a bad thing to vaccinate them? So the CDC says as long as you don't have an active fever and you're not on certain immune-suppressing medicines, you're fine to go ahead and vaccinate even with an illness. So, you know, babies are sick all the time because they're in daycare, and that's when we're giving the vaccines is when they're babies. So try and just push through and get them done. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think Sean has experienced that, that infants are sick all the time because they're in daycare. Because now now Sean is sick all the time. Everything. (laughs) Dude, it's the worst. Dude, my, I, I share this story. My my son's first winter in in daycare, I lost 18 pounds in three months because I was sick so oh much gosh. with that kid. <laughs> uh, yeah. It was bad. But by the end of it, I had patients like offering to bring me food. And I was like emaciated. <laughs> it's rough. It's real. I, I remember my, my first year or two as a pediatrician just being sick all the time. Um, you know, so now between work and having three kids at home who are sick, it can be rough. But yeah, yeah I'm pretty much immune to all of it now. Everything, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Problem is, I wasn't in in, in uh, daycare when I was little, so I didn't get exposed mm. to all that stuff. My my mom stayed home, just kept us out of a lot of that, so I didn't get any of those things when I was a kid. This is like man flu so all winter, huh? <laughs> Oh, dude! I, I even got hand, foot, mouth. That was <laughs> that was fantastic. Oh, uh, terrible, uh, Brian. Uh, I think last question from me. Uh, this is one that uh, I was texting you about earlier. So when um, when we have a newborn baby, they typically get three kind of medications that we like are like here. Let's 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 give these to everybody that we can. Uh, the Hep B uh, vaccination. Uh, vitamin K shot and the erythromycin goop in their eyes. Yeah. Right. I, I, am I missing anything? I mean, I don't do neonates very often anymore, especially like I'm not doing delivery rotations. Um, but I, I think those are the big three, right? Yep. Those are the three that get administered kind of sh- right after birth, right after birth. Uh, wh- which ones, which ones can I do without? So the preference would be to do all of them. Um, Maybe, you know, and every state has different laws. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if they have state laws there where you are in Arizona. Um, None at all. California doesn't (laughs) really care. We do whatever we want. Yeah, California doesn't really care what you do either. So, Um, But I've practiced in other states where there actually are laws and um, stuff as to getting them done. Anyway, probably the eye ointments the least necessary so the ointment protects against um, gonorrhea or chlamydia infections in the eye that babies can pick up through the birth canal so if you're pretty confident as a mom that you don't have gonorrhea or chlamydia that's probably one that your baby could go without right uh, uh, 
Is there any lasting damage from erythromycin in the eyes? No, not that I'm aware of. Uh, extremely small risk of like having an allergy reaction to the product, but um, no, no long-lasting issues. Right, right. I, and I would, I think I would agree with that one. Like of all the three, like that's probably the. As long as you've had good prenatal care, you feel like you've been fairly monogamous up until delivery. That that one's probably a. a if if you're trying to get rid of one. Yeah, that, that's the one yeah. you could, right? But that's probably the one you could. Yeah. So and then so the the vitamin K it shouldn't even be an option. Like, oh. um, so b- babies don't have vitamin K when they're born. They don't have the bacteria in their gut that make vitamin K for at least a week or two. Um, and if your body doesn't have vitamin K, you basically cl- can't clot your blood properly. So. Um, if you don't get that shot, your baby's at a really high risk of getting a brain bleed or internal bleed, and um, you don't want that to happen. That you know, so that one should be given to every baby. Yeah, I completely agree with that one. Uh, I feel like at least once a month, I'm reading a case report about a baby who parents decided to withhold the vitamin K and ended up having a bleed into the brain. They couldn't figure out why the baby wasn't developing properly, and it's because couldn't couldn't coagulate yeah. couldn't couldn't make the clots and yeah super sad very sad yeah yeah uh, and he- then he- oh, hep b yeah let's talk about that a little bit yeah so so hep b is interesting so you you can actually decline the birth dose of hepatitis b and still complete the full um cdc recommended series of vaccinations at two four and six months old um the reason why we recommend the baby infant dose um, as pediatricians is if you contract hepatitis B, the younger you are, the more likely it is that that infection will lead to liver damage, including cirrhosis. And so the, the numbers on it are if you contract hep B as a newborn, it's about 90 to 95% chance of having chronic liver damage oh wow whereas if you compare that to a kid who's even just like one to two years old um it's down to like 10 percent risk and then by school age it's even less than that so so yeah if you're gonna put your kid in a daycare you should strongly consider getting that birth dose just to reduce that risk of picking up hepatitis b from a daycare setting if you're not going to have your kid in daycare right away, you're probably okay without it and waiting until two months. Right. But, and I think, again, that's kind of comes back to the, there's really no reason to not do it at birth. Yeah. Unless you're just, like you said, trying to eliminate things for whatever reason, you know, I can, I can kind of understand it a little bit. I want to take a step back with a question. Um, can you explain herd immunity and what happens when a large uh, amount of, of some group does not uh, get vaccinated, protected against something? What happens when you lose that? Yeah, so herd, herd immunity is kind of the phenomenon of everybody around you is vaccinated, so you're kind of protected by this bubble around you of protected people. So the invading pathogen can never make it to you because everybody around you is kind of building a wall. Um, and 
I don't know exactly what that number is for each illness. It's somewhere around the 90% mark, I think, Ben, you could maybe weigh in too. But once you start dropping the population's coverage below 90%, there seems to be little breaks in the wall and bubble that's built around you. And so um, then you become much more susceptible to, to picking up that illness. Yeah, I I don't really have anything important to add. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> you can hear, doctor. <laughs> I might have made up the ninety percent. Uh, I don't really know what the number is. No, I mean I I, I think that sounds about <laughs> right. Somewhere around me. there. Yeah. Yeah. High high eighties to nineties somewhere in there is. All right, let's go after the big question: Do vaccines cause Ooh, autism? Hard hitting journalism yep. here, folks. Right. Yeah. So no. Um, what? Yeah. He didn't stutter. He didn't <laughs> I stutter. I heard a stutter. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I can't believe this is still like even like a valid conversation anymore. I, I think like. Did you just yeah. call stupid? That, just, that explains our podcast. This is not a valid conversation. <laughs> I know what our next podcast is going to be called. Not a valid conversation. Not who I do like that. Or maybe a band. Can we start a band? I play the ukulele. Nice. I don't actually play the ukulele, but I have one. So <laughs> off topic, not a valid conversation. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. So uh, the, the, all that data was found to be falsified and not accurate. And so there's been multiple large studies since then that have kind of disproven that phenomenon. So one, it was false. And two, we have data showing that it was false. So not an <laughs> well. issue. Brian, are we missing anything? Anything you want to leave us with as far as childhood vaccines? Trying to think what else I see in clinic. You know, I, I don't know if this is relevant at all, but um, do you ever get this question, Ben, for the kids? Um, so a long time ago in this, I don't know, maybe the 70s when vaccines were first being made, they made the unfortunate decision to use uh, fetal stem cells from aborted babies as kind of the culture to grow the um, agent in. So I, I have families now that kind of say, you know, I don't want to inject an aborted fetus into my baby and trying to explain how we're no longer using that science, but that that virus has just been grown in different cultures over time. And that DNA has kind of followed along with it. It's a rare, I think, situation that somebody asks about that, but, um, it's certainly something that I, I don't think I've come into contact with anybody saying though, you know, that exact thing, but I've seen it on online message boards and, um, and different, uh, Facebook groups where they'll say, yeah, I, I can't support a vaccine that is based on, on science that is took all these aborted babies and, and that's how we got the vaccines. Like, Yeah. Yeah, so people are kind of, I mean, obviously it's not something that happens anymore, but um, people are kind of against maybe the companies who did that in the past and therefore don't want to use any of their products today that aren't doing that anymore. So Yeah, I think I think it's something that we can agree is uh, not right for them to right. have done that and definitely an atrocious thing. However, uh, we have these things now that are going to, protect people that are going to save their lives that are going to keep them from long-term uh serious side effects and uh damage from these diseases and uh we're not engaging in those practices anymore 
Right. Yeah. Well said. This is for both of you. Uh, you may have, have different, different ways to describe this. Explain what vaccines do. Why do we get them? What happens when this stuff is injected into our body? We, sure. We don't, so, we don't um, know. <laughs> we, we put the needle in magic happens and you're immune. Yeah. Yeah. And the kid cries a lot. Ooh, lots of crying. Yeah. And we do it like every couple months. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Just to make sure the magic's still working. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I'm, I'm going to defer to the <laughs> smarter doctor here. <laughs> right. So, okay. So the, the, <laughs> the way a vaccine works is, um, well, there's different ways that vaccines uh, are made, but the most common way is they take a portion of a pathogen and they either kill it or it's just a small part of it. And so it's not even alive and they inject it into you to kind of stimulate your immune system to say, Hey, this foreign object you need to be able to protect yourself against and your body makes um, immune cells in response to that. So that later in life, when you get exposed to the entire pathogen, not just a component of it, your body already has kind of memory cells built up and you can form a more robust response and hopefully not get as sick. I, I think that was really well said, Brian. Um, I think I almost understood that. So yes, <laughs> yeah. I had to think a lot for a second. I feel like you nailed it. Yeah. Good. Um, so, so every year you have the flu vaccine. Everyone mm. says the same thing. Well, I got the flu vaccine one year and I still got the flu. So I don't get it again. I don't believe in that. Go ahead and rebut that. Yeah. So um, at least for kids, I don't, Ben, you can maybe speak to adult data. The, it's true. The flu shot is not the greatest vaccine. Um, one, influenza changes a lot from year to year. And two, there's tons of different strains. And so it's hard to predict which strains are going to be out in the community every year far enough ahead to make the vaccine cover the most common strains. It's like trying to predict the future, right? So it's difficult. And um, at least for pediatric data, somewhere between 60 and 65% coverage with the vaccine in any given year. So um, it's better than nothing, but you can see there's, there's a percentage of vaccinated people that are still going to probably pick up flu. Um, yeah, this year I think we are hitting somewhere slightly north of 80%, at, at least from the numbers that I've seen um, here in Arizona. Um, awesome. And, uh, and so folks who are getting the, the, the flu vaccine are doing really, really well. Uh, some of them are still getting a mild version. Uh, but my, my patients who, <laughs> right, I got a mild version as well, but my patients who uh, aren't getting vaccinated are coming back multiple times uh, spread out over the course of a couple months of, hey, I got super, super sick for like a week and a half. I got better. And now I'm super, super sick again. And it's all very similar symptoms. I mean, they're just getting hit over and over and over again. And this year just seems to be wiping people out. Um, and it's, it's rough. And, and the ones who are getting vaccinated beforehand are doing so much better. Uh, whereas I feel like last year, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I'll, it was abysmal. I feel like last year we had every single day, it was patient after patient of just awful flu like symptoms. So, yeah, I would agree. Last year was one of the worst we've had in a long time. And this year has been 
um, notably better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so flu shot, uh, I, I'm still recommending it. I agree. Like Ryan was saying, it's like trying to predict the future. Sometimes we get it right. Uh, sometimes it, it's not right. So, um, yeah. And then Ben, do you guys use the, the, the flu mist nose spray stuff in adults anymore? Mm, no, no, no. We it's do all injection. All, all injection. Yeah. yeah. They only had that around for what, like two or three years or something like that, didn't they? Yeah, and then they basically said uh, that didn't work too well, so stop. Yeah, I don't stop think it, it, it. <laughs> it stimulated. It didn't stimulate enough of a, an immune response, I think, to right. be effective. So yeah, yeah, we don't we don't do that. Which is, it's less painful, but if it doesn't work, why do it, right? Right. Exactly. Hmm. Ben, how many strands do they put in, in injections now? So three or four. Uh, typically most of them are either three or four. A lot of them are the quadri quadrivalent, which means four, uh, but we still get some that are trivalent depending on what, what, uh, manufacturer I think. Um, why, why would they still do the three? Isn't that like six minute abs versus seven minute abs? Like why would you do the <laughs> seven minute abs when you can do it? <laughs> uh, I actually don't know. I think it, it might be cost as well as. Uh, just who the manufacturer is. Um, I think it takes a little bit more effort to to uh, produce a vaccine against four than it does against three. But I don't know, Brian. Do you have any? No, I I don't. I I just know our clinic uses the trivalent one. I'm not really sure why. Um, it's probably just who our company's contracted with or something. So I don't know the answer really. Probably, probably get rid of that question, Sean, because nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't want people to think we're uh, we're just making all this stuff up. <laughs> hey, I wanted to mention, um, we since we're moving a little bit kind of in that sort of adult vaccine thing, uh, shingle shot. Um, hey, that's what I was looking up. Were What's you going to talk about that one? So, yeah. okay, about two to three years ago, and uh, actually two years in and previous to two years ago uh my patients would come in they say hey should i get the shingle shot i would tell them no don't do it it doesn't really work it costs a lot of money a lot of insurances won't cover it and again it doesn't really work um you would get a little bit of a, a reduction in kind of some of that shingles pain but you would you would still just get shingles from it which if you've had shingles, stinks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Sean has had shingles. Uh, he is old enough to be a shingle survivor. Um, however, now we have a new shingle shot out, and I'm not paid by whoever makes the shingrix. Not at all. I wish I was because I promote this thing so heavily. Uh, it works. It works so well. It prevents shingles. It helps decrease the pain if you end up having breakthrough shingles. If you've previously had shingles, you can still get this shot, and it will help you from getting it again. It's fantastic. I love it, and I'm telling all my patients to get it. Um, yeah, go out, get yourself a Shingrix. The trouble is right now, we're still, I, I think there's still a backlog, uh, or a, what's the right word? shortage or something shortage is the right word yes thank you there it is thank you that was a tough one where uh people are still having to wait in long lines and wait lists to actually get it so 
when are you supposed to get that as an adult? Uh, yes. Um, typically, I think it's uh, FDA approved above 50, but insurances typically won't cover it until 60. Hmm. Uh, I think you can pay cash and get it whenever you want, uh, depending on the state that you're in. You've got to be careful on that. But uh, in Arizona, uh, certainly after 60. Can I make an appointment cool. with you tomorrow to get one? I don't. <laughs> I don't want shingles again. That sucks. Did you? Uh, did you have chicken pox as a kid? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So, so ugh. pediatric vaccine segue. So right. So Ben. So chicken pox is what goes dormant and becomes shingles when you're an adult, right? So exactly. There's a childhood vaccine for chicken pox now, and it's really effective. Um, so no need to do the chicken pox parties anymore. It, and oh, I was asked this the other day, and I I made up my answer, but I think it was based on science. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you're given the chicken pox vaccine, you're probably going to be less likely to get shingles in the future. Is that is that your understanding? Yeah, you are slightly less likely um, if you've been vaccinated. Um, you do still carry a risk of getting shingles, but it is less. Nice. Sometimes yeah. when I make things up, they're right. Yeah. It's good to know. Good yeah. Know. So it's like, a, you know, you don't get chicken pox and you're less likely to get shingles. It, it's double good. Win, win. And then I, as the physician, get a kickback. So win, win, win. This right. Great. Right. Yeah. I I'm wish. Still waiting on my money. It's in the mail. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> It'll say on the front, you've won a million dollars. Open that one. Open. Oh, those. I, yeah. I've been throwing those away. <laughs> yeah. You got to open them up. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> They're also in those emails from Saudi princes that you've inherited a, a large inheritance. Wait. There it is. I've been deleting those. No, no. <laughs> That's really. where all my money's been going. No, Ben, you copy and paste your social security number and you send it to every <laughs> single one of those. Just auto-reply. <laughs> Just in case you didn't hear our disclaimer at the beginning, this is an educational podcast and not life advice. So uh, <laughs> please don't follow the recommendations of anything you hear on here. <laughs> but do vaccinate your kids. Yeah, that that's a vac- yeah, that's a good recommendation. <laughs> Be like, wait, should I not do everything you guys were just talking about, or should I? I don't know anymore. People are super confused. <laughs> what um, what percentage of people do get shingles? Twenty three and a half. So you just made that number up. Indeed. Okay. Everybody at home, go Google it. <laughs> exactly that's what i would do right i'll now actually if... do that for you right now <laughs> are you gonna answer your own question i guess you're not gonna hey, help me hey sean what percentage of people <laughs> get shingles 95 percent of adults are at risk well that's not it that they're at risk uh approximately one third of the u.s population will get shingles oh if you're listening hey. to us in Canada, you're safe. <laughs> one out of three of us. Yeah. And since Sean already took one for the team, Brian, you and I are safe. So we're good. Good Damn news. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yep. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I got super lucky when when I got mine because I just joined my practice now, so I'm, I'm in a multi-specialty pain management clinic, and so like 
I started getting the rash and I didn't really know what it was. My wife looked at it. So my wife's a nurse and she's like, that kind of looks like shingles went in mm. and talked to our nurse practitioner. So you know, day I hadn't even had it for 24 hours yet. And she's like, Oh yeah. Oh, that's shingles. Here's, here's your prescription for the medication. So I could get on it right away. Cause you have what, three days to get on that medication to shorten the shorten the severity of it. Yeah. Really that Dang. first 72 hours is pretty crucial. Brian Liddell, pediatrician, uh, co-host of Doctor and the Dietitian. Did I say that right? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram, the Doctor and the Dietitian. Ah, uh, the um, Doctor and the Dietitian. Yeah. Yes. Or our website, thedoctorandthedietitian.com. And uh, just as a quick plug for for these guys, uh, they have a fantastic Instagram, fantastic website, lots of helpful tips and. Uh, uh, great ways to help motivate your kids to eat. If you have children, uh, if you don't have children, great ways to motivate yourself to eat healthy and, uh, uh, pretty, pretty awesome content that they put out there. So, yeah, thanks man. Brian, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your insight and, uh, hopefully we can get you back on the show sometime when, uh, we need somebody really, really smart. Cool. I'm glad to come back. <laughs> Sean, do you have anything to close us out with? I kind of want to get his take on something on the dietitian side. Oh, let's hear it. Let's hear it. So, what do you think about someone who exposes their kid to a whole thirty diet? <laughs> Screw you, man! <laughs> <laughs> My kids are still traumatized because of that. <laughs> They still hate me because of the whole thirty diet. Wasn't that like last year? No, like, uh, yeah, technically. Like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> end of the last year, they still are so mad. Oh my gosh! Wow. Yeah, man. When, yeah, you tried to pull that sugar away too quick, man. Oh, it was awful. It was awful. Everybody suffered. Nobody won. I recognize <laughs> now that that was a bad thing for everybody involved. <laughs> Right. If you haven't heard that episode yet, you should go back and listen to that one. We talk about our diets and, and his daughter comes up. And so we interview her and she's like, it was horrible. Never again. That's she's, funny. she's still Jamie will be like, so guys, we're thinking about, and the kids are like, not another diet. And they're like, no, no, no. We're thinking about like, you know, going to Disneyland. They're like, oh, okay. Okay. That's fine. Way to go, <laughs> not man. Not the whole 30. kids left and right. We threaten them with that if they don't go to bed. So whole 30 tomorrow for your kids. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Doc Doctors Podcast. Next one's going to be health articles again. Look forward to that one. Maddie, start your research. It's I will. <laughs> With that, my name is Sean Palmer. I am Dr. Slash Physician Benjamin Imes. I'm Matt. This episode is sponsored by Innovative Pain and Wellness. Innovative Pain and Wellness is a multi-specialty pain management practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. They have interventional pain management physicians, physical therapists, and chiropractors focused on getting patients off of dangerous medications, getting them out of pain, and returning them to all their normal activities. 
They also have cryotherapy chambers, nutrition programs, and a regenerative medicine program offering PRP and stem cell treatments. You can find out more about them by going to their website at www.innovativepainandwellness.com. Thank you for listening to the Doc Doc Goose podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a review to help others discover us. Visit our website at www.ddgpodcast.com to read the show notes, blogs, view videos, and interact with the cast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the DDG Podcast. If you have an Apple device, you can easily access the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, play the Doc Doc Goose podcast. <laughs>